Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series today, His Story, Lessons from the Old Testament. We sort of began with early man, with Adam and Eve, and and then their children, and we're up to Abraham, so we're working our way through Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. And I want to talk today about something that is probably one of the greatest challenges that all of us have, and that is learning to trust God as we walk through life and making him a part of all of the decisions day by day that we experience in life. Now, there are many ways we exhibit faith in God. And if you were to look up the word faith in a, in a Bible dictionary or something like that, it would be just like looking up another word in another dictionary where you'd have multiple meanings. And they all sort of take place in different parts of the Scripture. So when it comes to exhibiting faith in God... We believe certain things. That's a part of faith in God, is just belief, giving intellectual assent or agreement to certain truths about God. That's a part of our faith. We believe certain things intellectually. Another part of our faith is commitment. Sometimes the word faith is used sort of a decision to commit ourselves to God, and that's sort of about his, uh, his lordship in our lives, our obedience to him. So faith at times will take on the idea of commitment to God. The third one, the one I want to talk today about today has to do with trusting God along our journey. And that for many of us is probably the hardest thing to do because sometimes it's a little bit difficult to define as well, but we're placing ourselves daily and in all of our decisions in the hands of an unseen reality. We absolutely believe God, but I haven't shaken hands with him, but I absolutely believe in him. I've committed my life to telling people about him, and you're committed to God as well. If you're here, you're likely committed to God, or you're very interested in it. And the Bible wants us to have trust in this God on a day-to-day basis, to believe that he always has our best in mind, no matter what happens in our lives. Daily, ongoing trust. Sometimes it's hard to know what that looks like. Even when we know what it looks like, it's pretty hard to practice at times. One writer said, I started trying to teach my son to swim early on. It was a chore. A year or so old at the time, the little guy didn't like getting water in his face in the bathtub, much less this massive ocean of a pool he was staring at now. At first, teaching him to swim meant getting him to splash around a bit on the top step and maybe putting his lips in the water enough to blow some bubbles if he was feeling really brave. But eventually, I convinced him to walk around with me in the shallow end of the pool with a death grip around my neck, of course. Once we mastered that, it was time for the big show, jumping off the side. Fulfilling my God-given duty as a daddy, I lifted him out of the pool, stood him on the side, and said, come on, jump. I think at that moment, my one-year-old son wrote me off as a crazy man. The look on his face in about two seconds went from confusion to dawning understanding of what I wanted to amused rejection and then to outright contempt. He frowned and said, no, I go see mommy. 
Again, acting faithfully on my solemn responsibility as a father, I refused to surrender. I chased him down, eventually convinced him with a variety of bribes to come back to the pool. And so we came to the moment of truth. I jumped into the water again and stood in front of him with my arms outstretched, watching him bob up and down in his swimmy diaper as one-year-olds do, and they kind of want to jump, but not really. Come on, kiddo, I said. I'm right here. I'll catch you, I promise. He looked at me half skeptically, did one more little wind-up, bouncing at the knees, and he fell into the pool, which with what was more of a flop than a jump, but he did, and I caught him. And after that, we were off to the races. Do it again, Daddy, do it again. And so commenced half an hour of jump, catch, lift, reset, jump, catch, lift, reset. And when it was over, my wife and I started to worry that maybe our son had gotten a little too comfortable with the water. What if he wandered out to the pool when no one was there with him? Would he remember all the times he'd safely jumped into the water and decide he had this pool thing whipped? Would he jump again without us? Over the next few days, we watched him around the pool. And what we saw both comforted me as a parent and touched me deeply as a father. Never once did my little boy think jumping about jumping into the water, at least not unless I was standing underneath him with my arms out, promising to catch him, and then he would fly. You see, despite all his apparent successes, my son's trust was never in his own ability to handle the water. It was in his father, in his father's promise, come on, kiddo, jump, I promise I'll catch you. God is trying in each of our lives to get every one of us to this point on our journeys. Obstacles are going to be put in front of us. Opportunities are going to be put in front of us. And we are to learn to step into them, but not on our own. To step into him, trusting God, that use of the word faith, trusting God, depending on God, who we believe in but don't see, to guide us, to lead us in our lives, to sort of be a sovereign leader in our lives, and to catch us at times. And in our story today, a man named Jacob is on a spiritual journey towards trust in God. And I say he's on a spiritual journey because today he's a big disappointment. He doesn't get there, which is great, because I find that incredibly encouraging when people in the Bible really mess up. It makes me feel so much better about my own journey. They're human. We're human. I want you to turn, and I'd encourage you to, to look at a Bible while I read this, because it's a little bit of a lengthier passage. So there should be a Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 27. It's on page 19 in the first book of the Bible, page 19 and page 20, Genesis chapter 27, pages 19 and 20. Now we're going to read not the whole story, but a good portion of it. Genesis 27 and page 19, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then please take your gear, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. 
So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, the other son, these are twin boys, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father such as he loves. And then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and then I'll be as a deceiver in his sight, and I'll bring my, upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her youngest son. And she put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. And he came to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up. Please sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game and I will bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate and he also brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the abundance of grain and new wine. Now here's this blessing that he'd be a leader of the tribe and a light to the world, eventually becoming the nation of Israel. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it came about as soon as Jacob, or Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it into his father and he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And Isaac said, who are you? He said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of it all before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Quite a story. Just going to look at two simple points here. One, Jacob did not trust in the promises and favor of God. Now, like many historical narratives, and by that I just mean sort of history sections of Scripture, it is not always perfectly clear what the main point is. And so whenever we're talking about the Bible and you're listening to somebody preach, what we should reflect if we're doing our job up here is we should reflect what's called two key words. And this is more important than anything else you'll ever hear from me. Authorial intent. 
If we just look at the Bible and make some points out of it that have nothing to do with why Moses wrote it, why God wrote it, then we can sort of, you know, people in my position be good cult leaders. We're saying things that might be true, but they're not what the text is saying. So we want to understand, what is the text saying? Or else is it really the Word of God? What is he trying to communicate to us? So, it's not always easy in historical narratives to understand the main point. Epistles are easy. When you listen to the Apostle Paul, you know exactly what he's talking about, because he tells you. The Gospels are fairly easy. Jesus tells a story, and then Jesus often gives you the point of the story when he's done, so it's pretty easy. But historical narrative is less so. Sometimes the writer just tells the story expecting the reader to understand right from wrong, and the writer may not say anything about the right or wrong. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's some absolutely crazy things that happen in the book of Judges, and often the writer of Judges doesn't say that they're crazy or wrong. So Christians read them and think, is that all right? A good example of this, remember in the book of um, Exodus, Moses kills an Egyptian. Remember that, when Moses kills an Egyptian and he's the son of Pharaoh? And when you're growing up in Sunday school, the Bible doesn't say that was wrong. So you're thinking, I don't know, can Moses kill Egyptians and it's okay? And it's sort of confusing at times because sometimes in narrative literature, they won't tell you right or wrong. They just assume you know. Sometimes the writer tells a story and does make a judgment. David and Bathsheba. David has an affair with Bathsheba. At the end of the whole thing, it says, the thing David did displeased the Lord. Now, you shouldn't need the writer to say that, but it helps. Sometimes when you get into narrative literature, there are multiple themes going on, sometimes only one. Here, I believe, we have two primary themes. First is the passing of the leadership of the clan from Isaac to his son. That's going on here. So Isaac is sort of the leader of the clan. He's a patriarch, and he's got to pass on the leadership of the clan to one of his sons. Now, this is what we spoke about last week. God had promised Abraham that Abraham is going to be a nation. We know that that nation was going to be Israel. That nation was intended to be, in the Old Testament, a light to the whole world. So God's sort of shiny new kingdom model, starting in Genesis chapter 12, after the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, in Genesis chapter 11, people are scattered all around the world, so now God wants to have this kingdom plan where everybody can come to know the true God, and his idea is, I'm going to take a man, I'm going to make of him a nation, and that nation will be a light to the world. So we're still in the, in the arena where the carrier of those promises is just one of these key individuals, and he's passing on these promises generationally one to the next. So Abraham to Isaac, now they're just clan leaders, but eventually it's going to be Jacob, and eventually that's going to be a nation, the nation of Israel, which will be a light to the world. So, so far, Abraham to Isaac, and today, what's next? The formal means of doing this involved what's called a birthright and a blessing. These are technical terms. Now, one of the difficulties in understanding the story is understanding what these technical terms mean, and to be honest with you, we're not exactly sure. Uh, we have a good idea, but one Jewish author that I found this week said that the birthright was called the Bekorah, the birthright, relates to the leadership role in the family and its mission of spiritually communicating to the world. So in other words, the birthright would be, you're gonna be the next leader of the clan, and in that role, 
you're communicating sort of God to the family and eventually God to the world when you become a nation. That's the birthright. And this Jewish author said, the blessing would be what's called the barakat, so the bakora, the barakat, related to a double inheritance portion, which we know was eventually put in the Old Testament law. One of the advantages of being the firstborn is the parents are just trying out parenting skills on you, but you get twice the inheritance, you know? So there is a payoff. A double inheritance portion. Not everyone agrees with this. So others, authors, suggest that the blessing merely confirmed the birthright, so that the birthright is sort of what you inherit, the blessing is just when daddy sort of says this is what you're gonna inherit, and he validates the whole process. The text seems to imply that they're separate issues. So I'm gonna go with that Jewish author a little bit on that. Thank you. So the passing of spiritual leadership and material wealth is a theme here. As this birthright and blessing are passed from Abraham to Isaac and now to one of the sons. That's part of the history here because eventually these people are in the line of Christ. We're gonna get a savior through them. But here's the other theme. And this is the one that's sort of sad, and this is the one we can really relate to. The struggle within Jacob to trust God for his future is a major theme in these chapters. The Jacob narratives last for many chapters, and we're intended to watch his faith development, and and he is not doing very well at all in the faith development. Many chapters from now, we see Jacob, I believe he's on the edge of a brook, I think it was the Jabbok, and he's, it's the middle of the night and some dude comes towards him by the brook and he begins to wrestle with this stranger. Now Jacob was a varsity wrestler in high school and so he feels like he's prepared for this. This guy's coming at him out of the dark. He starts wrestling with this guy. Eventually we are to understand this stranger was actually God. And in that moment, as Jacob is wrestling, again, I believe it's by the brook, the Jabbok, he cries out to this angel that we believe was God, you know, Jesus pre-incarnate perhaps, I want you to bless me. He's wrestling with this stranger in the dark and he's crying out, I want you to bless me. Now what's interesting about that is this, that's long after he's gotten the birthright and the blessing. We just read how he got the birthright and the blessing. So this is a man that God wants to bless. It's a guy that wants to be blessed. But he is so busy in our story manipulating his own success. How would he ever know that God is in it if everything he does is dishonest? Now before these boys were born, and we talked about this last week, God had revealed that Jacob was gonna be the one who was gonna be blessed. He would be the one that would carry on the family name. He would be the one that would become the nation, that would be the leader of the clan, that would become the nation, that would bless the world, that would give us the Messiah. Mom got this voice from God while she's pregnant. These boys are fighting in her womb. Mom got this voice from God saying the older would serve the younger. So Rebecca knew it, and during Jacob's growing up years, I'm sure she told Jacob about this because he was her favorite. Unfortunately, Esau was daddy's favorite. Having a favorite in the first place is a problem. So she told Jacob for sure. But Jacob never learned to trust God with the promise that he would be the one. 
He had expectations of it. He tried to get it by taking it. Last week we saw where Esau sold the birthright for a, you know, basically a pot of lentil stew, but God wasn't part of it. So in this section of Scripture, Jacob didn't trust in the promises in favor of God, and here's how he demonstrates it, the second point. Jacob participated in lies and deceit to procure what God wanted to graciously give to him anyway. And that's the story we read. It's so tragic on so many levels. But the reality is, we, we may not be Jacob, and we may not be lying and deceiving, but we really do exemplify what he exemplifies, and that is, in this world, even when we believe in God, we often live and act as though we're on our own. We often sort of live out lives of almost practical atheism, I'm following Jesus, but when it comes to the decisions in my life, when it comes to how I believe God's going to take care of me or how I'm going to get ahead, I kind of feel like I'm on my own, and maybe I'll pray a little bit, but it really seems like it's just me in a tough world around me, and i got to make it happen. And we often don't include God in the process. That we're often guilty of. We may not be like Jacob, lying and deceiving, but we often leave God out of things. So possible better case scenarios for Jacob as he's entering this situation. Let's just think through what could have been if things had been handled a little better here. Rebecca, before these two boys are born, gets a message from God, which we know she did get from God. The older will serve the younger, okay? And Rebecca gets that message from God, which we have a couple of chapters earlier, and it's taken seriously by Isaac. So she goes to Isaac, which I'm sure she did, who's the father of these twins, and says, God has told me the older is going to serve the younger. We're going to have these two twins, but the younger one is going to be the one that carries on the family line. The younger one is going to be the one that that carries on our spiritual heritage. The younger is going to be the one who leads us towards a Messiah, who leads us towards a nation. And then both Rebecca and Isaac are raising these boys with this knowledge. At some point, they communicate to Esau, he's not going to be the leader of the clan, and maybe it doesn't happen till adulthood, but at some point, Isaac and Rebecca get on the same page and help these boys be on the same page, and God's word is simply listened to. That would have been ideal. Or maybe Isaac holds Esau accountable for his behavior, recognizing that Esau can't be the leader of the clan. Now, I hope you know this, but when you get a Bible in Hebrew, well, actually, if you have a Hebrew Bible, it does have chapters and verses, but a while back, the Hebrew Bible, the Greek manuscripts, none of them had chapters and verses. And they little, have little chapter titles telling us what they're about. Those are all added for us so we can read through sections of Scripture and so we can say, hey, turn to chapter 27, verse 1 on page 19. But in the original manuscripts, we have none of that. So do you know what the last words are before this story even starts? They're very sad. It's heartbreak for mom and dad, because Esau gets married. He gets married to two girls. Unfortunately, the heartbreak wasn't that there were two, as wrong as that was. That wasn't the heartbreak. The heartbreak was the families they came from. Right before this passage is introduced, it shows how disqualified Esau was because he marries two Hittite women, two pagan women. That's the verse right before this chapter. And if you didn't have the chapter separation, it would make a little more sense. What a disappointment Esau is becoming. 
I mean, I'm sure mom and dad are glad he's 40. It's probably time to get married. But he's been dating the girls from the wrong youth group. And he keeps going to the wrong church. They're not the people of God. They're the people of the land. So he marries two pagan women. So Isaac, dad, is trying to pass on the blessing, the Abrahamic blessing and lineage that will be a light to the whole world through a son who just recently had his honeymoon with two pagan women. Esau was not a godly man at all. Last week we read the chapter where it said Esau despised his birthright. He didn't care about the things of God. Leadership of the clan for him was a position of power and material influence. It wasn't carrying on the Abrahamic blessing to, to communicate with God and be a light to the world. And all of those issues contribute to Jacob's insecurity. He's got this promise from God that he's going to be the one through whom the blessing passes, but it doesn't look like the family's going to cooperate with this. Doesn't look like daddy's going to cooperate with this because daddy likes Esau. No matter what Esau has done, Esau's got a record with the local police. Esau's marrying the wrong women. Esau's a problem. But still, Isaac is insistent on giving him the blessing. Instead of Isaac and Rebekah following God's instructions about Jacob, we have the story that we read. Isaac is old. And he's old now and blind. He wants to bless his son. And regardless of what you think the blessing and the birthright were or are and any distinctions between them, in verse 20, uh, 29, we see that when he did bless Jacob, thinking it was Esau, he's elevating him above, above other nations. He's giving him leadership in the family. He's using the cursing and blessing motif that comes from the promise to Abraham. I mean, he is making him the leader of the clan. So he wants to bless his son, Esau. Rebecca gets wind of it. She had known from before they were born that Jacob was to be the one who was blessed. He would be the leader of the clan. As faulty as he is, God will get him straightened out eventually. Esau was hopeless. Esau, according to Dad, was to kill and prepare some fresh game. Esau was a hunter. And so <clears throat> Dad tells him to do that. Go kill some game and make it the way you make it with that, you know, that special seasoning you get from Cabela's and just the way I like it. And we'll have that meal together and then I'm going to bless you, Esau. So Rebecca overhears this. She's just outside the tent. And she tells Jacob, he's going to give away the blessing. You're supposed to be the one. We got to fool him. So she says, let's prepare a couple of goats and make them just like Esau preps game animals. We're gonna use the same stuff. You know the recipe, you're the cook. Jacob's thinking, I, I don't feel like Esau. I'm not built like Esau. I'm, I'm not a hairy dude like Esau. Esau literally means hairy. My brother's name is Harry. Dad may be blind, but he can still touch. Don't worry about that, Rebecca says. We're gonna take the skins from these goats that we butcher, and we're gonna put them on your hands and neck. Wear Esau's clothes. They, they stink like Esau. Smell like him. Feel like him. Jacob did it all with mama's help. It's actually mom's idea. 
That's a whole other sermon. And in the process, he adds outright lying to his father. In the midst of receiving a spiritual heritage, dad says, you don't really sound like Esau. And he lies to him when his voice is questioned. And Isaac then went along with him when he felt his skin, which was the hair of these animals. And Isaac ate and drank. And in the holiest of family moments, he blessed his lying son instead of his worldly son. And then Esau returns from hunting. He preps the game he'd killed. And he enters Isaac's tent or his home. And he says, Dad, I'm home. I got this food for you. And Isaac is shocked and shattered. And Esau is shocked and shattered and angry because what had been done, even though under false pretenses, could not be undone. Once the word was spoken, it was over. Esau, again, remember, this is a few thousand years ago. People kind of took matters into their own hands. Kind of missed that world. Esau vowed to kill Jacob. Rebekah knew it and sent Jacob to her brother Laban's house far away to prevent that murder from happening. Now, I want you to think about this. Jacob, this youngest son who was supposed to receive God's blessing, the spiritual heritage of the clan, he would be the one through whom Jesus would come. He would be the one that would create the nation of Israel that would be a light to the world. Jacob got everything he wanted. He got the birthright in last week's sermon. By, he didn't really trick his brother. His brother just didn't care about spiritual things. Now he's got the blessing. He had the birthright based on the silly deal for a pot of stew. He's got the blessing based on deceit and lies. He is now the leader of the people who would bless the world, who would be a light to the Gentiles and give us Jesus Christ. But I want you to think about where he's at spiritually. He has no reason to have any confidence in the God of the blessing. He has no reason to have any confidence that God was in this because he never let God handle it. He never let God sort this issue out between himself and his brother and between his parents. He forced the issue at every turn. He got what he wanted. He got the birthright and the blessing, but he completely bypassed, completely bypassed any amount of faith and trust in God in the process. Now, none of us are Esau and Jacob fighting with our parents who, over who's getting the blessing and the birthright. Now, there might be a few of us who have some inheritance issues in our family. I'm not, I'm not saying you don't. I'm just saying there are no Jacobs and Esau's here. But we do what he did. We bypass faith and trust in God in the process of moving forward in life all of the time. And then at the end of the day, we wonder, was God really in that, that move we made? Was God really in this job? Was God really in this choice we made? And, and we don't know. We don't have confidence because we didn't handle the process right. Just a couple of apps, the trust process apps. First, God cares about the journey as much as the destination. I want to camp here for a couple of moments. God was going to bless Jacob. 
Jacob, so far, has not trusted God at all to get there. He's going to get there. i got some good news for you. This is not a happy ending sermon for, for him, but he gets there eventually because God doesn't quit on him. But Jacob, so far, has not trusted God. He has, he has the birthright and the blessing. He won, but he's a manipulative liar. He's not been praying through these decisions. He's not exercised trust and faith in God. So he lacks the spiritual confidence that would come if God had sort of paved the way for him. Do you see the difference? He ends up in the same place. He's got the birthright and the blessing. But at the end of the day, he can't feel like God is in it with him. He got the destination, but he got there the wrong way. So that made me ask a question to make this a little practical for us. What's a good example of this? Who did this actually the right way? Where do we have that example? And you know what I thought of? King David, when Saul was hunting him to kill him. All right, so I'm not sure you know, where all of you are at with your Bible knowledge. I'm going to give you a little story. Most of you know this. So in the Old Testament, eventually, when Israel has kings, David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. There's already a king, though. It's Saul. And in those days, Saul would have expected his son to be the next king. But David is not his son, and he's been anointed king. He's anointed by the prophet. And once David started rising in both political and military success, Saul recognizes David's going to be the next king instead of his son. And a prophet also tells him his son will not be a king. And so he starts hunting David. Now, how would you respond if you were David? Saul is hunting him. He is trying to kill him. He is his armies hunting him and his army. And we see some incredible things in David's character during those events. He writes psalms about it where he is praying and trusting God for the timing of when God will turn the kingdom over from Saul's family to his own. He's praying and trusting God. He refuses to take matters into his own hands. We have stories in the life of David in the book of Samuel about how David has opportunities to execute Saul. And he refuses to do it. He refuses to touch what he called God's anointed. And he waits for God to open the door for him to be king. Do you see the difference between the character of David, trusting God even when it doesn't make sense, and the character of Jacob, just taking control, doing everything he can to manipulate the outcomes? David sat back and said, God said I'm going to be king. I'm going to wait for, to make sure it's God who, who opens that door. Jacob didn't have that kind of patience. His mom didn't have that kind of patience. She told him, lie and deceive your dad to get what you got coming. For us, Obviously, the simple statement here is never do the wrong thing to get the right outcome. When you do the wrong thing to get the right outcome, it's pretty hard to believe that God was part of that process. But I think more importantly, pray about every key decision in your life. It doesn't mean God's going to give you a clear direction, but pray about all key decisions so that all key decisions in your life include your acknowledgement of God in the process. And it doesn't mean he's going to tell you, hey, I want you to marry this person versus that person or go to this college versus this college. I'm not sure God always gives us all of the answers to all of life's major decisions. How many kids should we have? Did God say three or four? You know, I, I, I don't know that God always gives us those answers. I don't believe he always does. 
But when you're praying about these things and when you're including God in the decisions, you will not look back and say that you did not include God in them. Try not to separate the God part of life from the non-God part of life. Like, well, I'll pray about these things, but the rest of this stuff, I think I'm just supposed to have it covered by myself. Include God in the process because God cares about the journey, the journey of how you get somewhere in life as much as the destination you achieve. He is trying to build trust in you toward him. Jacob was really bad at it. And I hate to say it, but I think we're a lot like Jacob sometimes. Second, in the midst of our untrusting behavior, God still accomplishes his purposes. Here's the beautiful thing about being human. God didn't change his plans in this situation. Jacob was going to be the one. God just chose to change Jacob. And that was a big task. I mean, I'd say that's a God-sized task to change Jacob's heart because that man was messed up. And we'll talk about why in a few moments, because there were some contributing factors. Jacob was messed up, and so are we sometimes. But here's the deal. Jacob was plan A. It was going to be one of these two boys. And God said it was going to be Jacob. You know, today in the world, as the church of Jesus Christ and the people who make it up, like us, we are plan A. And guess what? There's no plan B. We are the hope of the world as Christians to be a light in this world. And God doesn't set us aside and say, I'm going to find a group of people who are a little more, uh, you know, workable. No, it's us. God is working on changing us just like he was working on changing Jacob so that he would have the kind of people that can be the light. And third, and this is a real practical one if you're parenting, Jacob reflected what he learned from others, and it's likely the same with you and me. Now, I think this is a part of Moses' point because he keeps giving us information about mom and dad and about ethical behaviors from these people. So Moses doesn't hide the influences in Jacob's life. Grandpa Abraham, I mean, he's known as the father of faith, but Grandpa Abraham was a lying sort of, he had a problem. He lied about his wife all the time when he'd go into New Territory saying, well, she's my sister because evidently she was just beautiful and he's afraid in that sort of primitive culture that somebody's gonna kill him and steal his wife. So everywhere he goes, he's like, well, tell everyone you're my sister. I mean, not the most courageous dude on the planet, but he, was, he modeled lying in that family. Guess what? And I didn't preach on this, but it's in the chapter right before this, and it would make a good sermon. Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's father in this story actually did the same thing in the chapter before. When Isaac goes to a new territory and he's got Rebekah, he pulled the same thing his dad did. Rebekah evidently is, you know, a looker. And Isaac's saying, okay, Rebecca, wherever we go, I'm going to pull what daddy pulled. We're just going to say you're my sister. You know, in Abraham's case, actually Sarah was his half-sister, same dad, different moms. And evidently you could get married back then and not have two-headed children, but nonetheless, sorry about that. That was not necessary. I've lost my place. But Isaac is marrying Rebecca. You know, she's from a, a, a clan that's related, you know, probably sort of distant cousins because there wasn't a huge human population at that point. But so he's, you know, marrying a distant relative, perhaps, uh, you know, at least, you know, one of the descendants of Seth. But the reality is, he, he didn't have to tell Rebecca wherever we go, we're going to say you're my sister. He learned that from daddy. 
Daddy probably sat down with him one day and said, you know, I know God doesn't really like this, but here's how I've been safe all these years and all these new territories we've gone into. And so Isaac does the same thing. And then Rebecca, she's a piece of work. She is fully on board, leading the charge with scheming and lying and deceit. I mean, she's not one of the bad girls of the Bible, but she'd be in that next section of, you know, not great examples to follow. Favoritism in the family. The last chapter we spoke on, Rebecca loved Jacob, Isaac loved Esau. What a sad verse in the Bible. Mom loved this boy, dad loved this boy. And all of these things worked in Jacob's life against a simple faith in God because he was sort of taught to lie and manipulate and cheat his way into the future. We're all products of our environment. This is not an excuse, but an explanation. We are all products of our environment. I am so thankful for the legacy of faith that I received as a child and that I passed on as a parent, but I also know that some of what I received was deeply flawed. And the older I get, the more I recognize that some of what I have passed on is deeply flawed. How about you? Can you make the necessary course corrections to pass on a brand of faith that really honors God and help your children to not repeat maybe areas of your life that are weaknesses, but to follow God in a more accurate and truthful way? Jacob Smith, I'm going to close with this. Jacob Smith's a 15-year-old legally blind freeride skier. I wouldn't ski with 20-20 vision anymore, but Jacob has extreme tunnel vision, no depth perception on top of that. What he does see is blurry. So his visual acuity is 2,800. You know, you want to be 2020 or 2010 if you're like got perfect sight. Four times the level of legal blindness is 2,800. So think of the big E on the eye chart. He needs the big E to be blown up four times to see it from 20 feet away. That's how blind he is. He's blind. Got a little blurry. How does Jacob ski like this? His family keeps him on course. On competition days, you can't make this up. On competition days, see, I would like put him on the little kitty hill. On competition days, Jacob's little brother Preston patiently helps him hike to the top of the venue. It's so high the lifts don't go that far. Then his father Nathan helps him get down. Jacob has a two-way radio turned up high in his pocket. His dad is on the other end at the base, somehow calmly guiding him down. And there's nothing in here about who checks the batteries, but that's pretty important. His father Nathan said this, it's on me to make sure I don't let him down. I have to guide him through narrow chutes or to not go off a cliff. Jacob is not reckless. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not going to try to do it by himself. Like he wants to be with somebody who he trusts. He won't ski with people he doesn't trust. When Jacob was asked how much he trusted his dad, he said, I mean enough to turn right when he tells me to. Death is one bad turn away in every situation. And he listens to the voice of his father. And God wants that kind of trust from you, from me. He's part of our journey. 
He wants to be included in all of our decisions where we wouldn't proceed without him, without even at least making things known to him and asking him to guide us. Doesn't mean we're always going to get a decision from him that's real clear. I don't hear audible voices. I suspect you don't either. But we make him a part of the journey so that at the end of the day we can say, you know what, I was trusting in God, I was praying to God, and I did what I thought was right at the time, including God in every step of the process. And that's how we develop the trust process. How about you? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this story of Jacob, and we see in him an incredibly flawed human being, which reminds us of ourselves a bit and gives us comfort that we're all on a journey, and none of us are perfect, and you've used imperfect people in the past, but you kept, kept up with Jacob in this, in this area until he learned to trust in you just like you do with us. Help us to get to that point in our lives in this trust process where we really learn to trust you, and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.